the, the lesson this morning, as the, I guess the graphics indicate, are, are going to be a bit of a fashion statement. And um, that will become evident increasingly as the, as the, uh, the lesson progresses. I, I want to begin, I guess, with the question, would you change your life if you were given the opportunity? And if so, what sort of changes would need to take place to allow you to transition from the present circumstances and state of life for you to that more idealised future self that you might be able to imagine? And I suspect there, there are very few human beings that would not respond to that question with a, yeah, yeah, I'd like to change. I would like things to be, to be better. And it seems to me, I guess it's a generalisation, but the, the children of the world, for want of a better phrase, would respond typically in, in a positive manner to that, uh, that question, that, that proposition put forward to them. And it would be a case of seeking to become who and what you are not. I'm not rich enough, so I'd like to be richer. I don't have enough possessions, so I'd like more possessions. And, you know, from a biblical perspective, this is really not surprising. Um, I want to cast your minds back to Genesis chapter 3 and the temptation of Eve. And when you think about it, the seed of doubt, the seed of dissatisfaction that Satan was able to plant in the mind and the heart of Eve really was what led to ultimately a turning of one's back on God, a rebellion against God. Not just Eve, but but her husband following along beside her. The fall. You see, humanity seems to operate on the basis of dissatisfaction. I'm not happy with my lot. I'm not happy with the way things are. And of course, this is the very mechanism that in modern times, things like the advertising industry tap into. If you buy this car, you can have this pretty girl. If you, if you live in this neighbourhood, then, then people will respect you. If you buy this product, your life will be so much better than it is. And I suspect every one of us in this room can relate to that way of thinking, that way of of, of being, as it were. The modern self-made man and woman, the idea that we can make ourselves into whatever, whatever we can imagine. It's almost as if only our imaginations hold us back. It's all there for us. But it's out there, not here. In stark contrast to that, I want to suggest to you the children of God have a totally different perspective. It's still about becoming, becoming who and what you are. Not what you want to be, not what you might conceive of or imagine for yourself with power and prestige or, or possessions or pleasure, however that might be defined in our minds. The great Christian insight, the great impetus of the Christian faith is to be moving towards realising what we are in Christ Jesus. 
God plans, you see, to transform us beyond anything we could imagine or think possible for ourselves. We could think about how life might be better for ourselves, certainly. And I'm not even suggesting that that's a bad thing. But if that's the sole objective in life, it becomes, it becomes problematic. I want to remind you that Paul has already encouraged the brethren at Ephesus to think along these lines. For this reason I kneel before the Father. This was Paul's prayer, remember, for the brethren at Ephesus, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and how deep and high is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we can ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Now, it's important for us to remember that the letter to the Ephesians, and many have argued that actually uh, it was a, a circular letter, it ended up with the name Ephesians tagged onto it, but it was more, had much more general circulation, wasn't only for the church at Ephesus, in other words. It's a general letter. But it is a letter and the nature of letters and we so often, I think, lose sight of this because we'll pick up a context, a a verse or two or a paragraph um, uh, and and sort of dissect it and inadvertently forget that it's part of a, a, a broader context. You see, letters by their nature, and we know this, I guess we have to think in terms of Emails, rather than the good old days when you'd, when you'd receive a physical letter in the mail. But either way, it's, the, the principle is the same. We, we begin at the beginning and we read through to the end. That's the nature of a letter. And really that's the, that needs to be in the background of our understanding of letters like Paul's letter to Ephesus or to Colossae, to the Philippians, etc., etc., And so the brethren here already have this reminder in the back of their minds as as they're reading through the letter. And I want to remind you of this. We've noted in previous contexts in our studies in Ephesians, there's a strong before and after element. And I want to just summarise it this way. And notice the context here, Ephesians chapter 2. So this is relatively early in the letter. Having, having advanced uh, this really a doxology of praise to God who has blessed us so abundantly with all spiritual blessings in Christ. And at this point, the before and after picture is presented. Chapter 2, Ephesians, verses 1 through 3. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. The before picture This is the way 
you were. You were dead in sin. But Paul goes on, but, but God, but because of this great love for us, God who was rich in mercy made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions, it is by grace you have been saved. Even when we were dead in our sins, God, in a sense, I guess despite us, despite our rebellion and our separation from God, God took the initiative. God acted in his grace to bring us from death to life. And so the after picture is Paul continues. God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. What a privileged position. God raised us up. He brought us back from death in sin. That we would reign with his son, in his son. We are God's handiwork, not our own handiwork, notice. We are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Now, my point is simple at this stage. These thoughts, these truths are fresh in the minds of the church at Ephesus as we move forward now further into the letter and seek to understand the intent of Paul with these statements from Ephesians chapter 4. Because we've covered some territory to this point. He's talked about addressing a largely Gentile church at Ephesus, how they were once as Gentiles separate from God, enemies of God, alienated from God, but that God had brought them together with the Jews. He had reconciled them together as one people, one family in Christ Jesus. And then he talks about the various, um, uh, the seven ones, as it were, the basis for that unity of the family of God. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. One spirit. One God and Father of all. One faith. All of that, that singular truth that holds us together, Jew and Gentile. And that becomes representative, really, of, of whatever other distinction you might think of. Separation by class or social status, wealth or poverty, uh, gender, male or female. Any conceivable difference that you could think of, all of those as a barrier to unity, as, as a barrier to familial love, are broken down in Christ Jesus. And now we come to this section of the letter. Listen carefully to Paul's words. And as the church in Ephesus received it when they first heard it as part of the letter, so let us remember what's gone before as Paul builds the picture. So I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord. Pretty strong language right up front, isn't it? I, this is important. This isn't negotiable. This is 
vital. This is central. That you must no longer live as the Gentiles do. And of course, he's just, he's just explained to them or reminded them that the, the bulk of them were Gentiles. And that's the way you were. But you were no longer to be like that. In the futility of their thinking, they are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity and they are full of greed. Again, we don't need to pause to take the time to unpack this description. It's pretty self-evident, isn't it? And it's a pretty good general description of humanity left to our own devices apart from God. And you know what? It strikes me that it all sounds very familiar. And I want to just take you on a brief excursion here, if you'll bear with me. This time I'm reading from Colossians, same author, the Apostle Paul, but but different audience, the church at Colossae. So then, just as you receive Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught and overflowing with thankfulness. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. Since then... You have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires and greed, etc., etc. Again, that familiar list that familiar picture. Again, same author, different audience. This time the churches, plural, of Galatia. You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love, for the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command. Love your neighbour as yourself. The acts of the flesh are obvious, Sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, etc., etc., etc. There's there's a familiar pattern becoming apparent here, isn't there? Uh, the church at Ephesus, the church at Colossae, the churches at Galatia. And what I want to suggest to you is Paul here, and our focus is going to be back on Ephesians chapter 4, Paul here though is addressing a problem that he anticipated, assumed, was going to be a challenge for every church and has been a challenge for every church, including the Point Church today. This is not some, you know, some little idiosyncrasy, some little remote thing that happened in the dim, dark past that has no connection with us today at all. This is central This is central. Paul would insist upon our paying attention just as he insisted upon the church at Ephesus, paying close attention to what he had to say. That, however, notice the contrast, the before and after theme, that, however, is not the way of life you learned when you heard about Christ and were taught in him 
in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Now, there are three steps here. First of all, Paul admonishes the Christians, us today, to put off the old self. Secondly, he challenges the Christians to change our thinking. And I've just added a couple of sub-points under that that I would assume that, that, that is involved or included in this idea of changed thinking. Having our, our, our thoughts transformed, renewed, as it were. There is a new authority. You see, when I was operating as a Gentile, the authority was me. I got to decide what was right and what was wrong. I got to decide what I wanted to do and what I didn't want to do. I was my own boss. And it felt good. But, of course, very often the consequences of that, it's fine when I'm on my own, you see, but when there's another person or two around me who also want to be their own boss and to do their own thing and then that thing isn't, doesn't align with my thing, before we know it there is bitterness and envy and fighting and carrying on. If I could live in isolation, I guess, I guess, life would be okay. But as I live in a community of others who are just as self-centred as me, things begin to fracture and, 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 and fall apart. Not just within myself, but of course in, in the community as well. But now there is a new authority. Jesus Christ is Lord. I embrace a new set of values. I have new priorities I develop new habits. All of these things flowing from a change in my thinking. And I want to thank Craig for his thoughtful selection of songs today. Really from the beginning of our meeting through to the present moment, all of the songs that uh, Craig has selected have, 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 have provided a wonderful segue into, into these thoughts in the lesson this morning. And the idea that we are to be transformed in Christ, that, 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 that Jesus Christ is the, the paradigm, the pattern, if you will, around which we form our life, our being, and by which we might judge our life. And the closer the alignment between our life and the life of Jesus Christ, his values, his way of being, his teachings, the closer aligned they are, the closer we are to realising what Paul is not just encouraging but demanding of Christians here. And then thirdly, put on your new self. Put on your new self. And I want to emphasise something here, lest we come away with the misunderstanding, the, the misconception that somehow Christianity is kind of like a, a, an ethical system, 
a, a, a list of do's and don'ts on the one hand, and that therefore Christianity is a, is a system of uh, you, you pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. That's not what Paul is entertaining here. Let me put it this way, and this is critical for our understanding. To be made new in Paul's teaching is to allow the Spirit of God to do his transforming work upon us. We, we tend to go to extremes. It's either, it's either this image of it's 100% God and therefore I don't do anything. In fact, to suggest that I do anything is a heresy. Works. And then the other extreme is, you know what, at the end of the day, I do pretty good on my own. <laughs> I really do do a good job. I'm a good person. I want to suggest to you that both of those extremes, though they summarise the thinking and way of humanity generally, whether we talk about the most hard-hearted of atheists or the most devout of religionists, you're going to find yourself somewhere on that spectrum. But the gospel is an entirely different way. And I want to throw out the word cooperation. You see, the spirit of God is not a coercer. He's not a maker in that sense. He doesn't force himself upon us. He yearns for fellowship with us. He yearns for what is best for us, but he will not force himself upon us. This is where the idea of cooperation or partnership becomes so critical. You see, When we obey, what we are in fact doing is opening ourselves up to be available to the Spirit to do his transforming work upon us. You see the cooperation, you see the partnership in that process? No obedience, no transformation. Because in not obeying, we're saying to the Spirit of God, we're saying to God, no no thanks, no thanks, I'm, I'm good on my own. Whether I conceive of that good on my own as, as, as being, uh, you know, I reject God altogether or, or I'm, going to, I'm going to be right with God on the basis of my own performance. I'm okay on my own. Either of those extremes are wrong. The good news is that God has established a way through his son by which we can be reconciled with God through faith, which presupposes our willingness, our desire to obey God. But here's the magic. In doing so, we allow God to work upon us, to do his transforming work. That's what Paul has in mind when he calls us to obedience, put on the new self. Now, I need to sort of introduce this. There's a bit of history here. Those of you that are Bible scholars will recognise that um, Timothy received a message from Paul and um, uh, it's recorded in in 2 Timothy chapter 4. You remember how Paul instructed Timothy, bring the parchments and, 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 and the coat. The coat. Here it is. And, and I want to give you a bit of a backstory for the, to this. This is, this is actually, the sermon wasn't original with me. I, I pinched it off Paul. 
the coat that you're... I'm not suggesting that this is the same coat. But, but, but what I am suggesting is it's the same idea from the Apostle. You see, this, this material was so good, Paul preached it on a number of occasions to a number of different churches, and, and the coat became critical to his purposes. An object lesson, quite unashamedly, an object lesson on the part of Paul. And so he has this coat... Timothy, I want to preach this lesson. I need the coat. Bring the coat. Bring the coat. And so the image is very simply this. This is our old self. This is the way of the Gentile, those who are living separate and apart from God. And Paul says you need to take it off. If you want to be fair income, if you want to really become part of that process, the before and the after, you have to be prepared to take this off. But here's the rub, here's the problem. Most of us think, you know what? I'll just put this on, I'll just put on Christ. And it's not a very good fit. In fact, it doesn't, it doesn't work well at all. But we satisfy ourselves, hey, I'm a Christian. I'm a Christian. And then after a little while, we start to think, oh, why isn't this working so well for me? I mean, I feel uncomfortable all the time. And I keep, I keep falling back into the old ways all the time. Well, it's because we're trying to have our cake and eat it too. And Paul says, you cannot do that. We'll note in a moment that this very process, trying to take our own initiative to do things our way, is again little different to the sort of rebellion where we were in open rebellion against God. There is no shortcut, there is no other way. We have to be prepared to take this off. To take it off. And by God's grace, as we cooperate with God, his spirit will help us to that end. Because he's on our side. He wants us to live up, if you will, to that image that he has of us as his beloved child in Christ Jesus. He wants us just to cast that aside. Now we can put on Christ. And you know what? It's a better fit now. And I want to say, for myself certainly, and I suspect for many of us here, we don't wake up to this really until we're probably middle-aged. It takes us that long to figure it out. We spend a lot of time as young Christians, young in the faith certainly, we might not be young age-wise, but young in the faith, we start out with good intentions but we fail to put off the old man. And we find, well, we're going to go one of two ways. We're going to settle for mediocrity, sure. Oh, well, I'm only human. Or we're going to find, you know what, I tried Christianity but it doesn't work. 
go on and try something else. Or we can get real and we can listen to the word of God, we can listen to the spirit of God and we can take that old self and put it aside. And all of a sudden, as a 50-year-old that's been a Christian maybe 20 or 30 plus years, it's starting to make sense. It's starting to work. Why didn't I listen to Paul 30 years ago? Well, some of us are slow. Some of us are slow. And the the good news is that God is patient. God is patient. And it's never too late to turn around. I've represented there a a life jacket. Because, again, this isn't about my performance. It's not about how good you do. It's about God's provision that we can be saved. That we can be saved from ourselves in being transformed into the image of Christ. I don't need to spend time on this, but I do want you to know, if you weren't aware, I know where Paul got his outline from. He got his, you know, his object lesson with the coat, I know that. He also got the idea for this lesson from Leviticus. The law of Moses. The Leviticus, that book in the law of Moses that nobody ever bothers to read because it's so weird. This is where it came from. Look at the language here. The Lord said to Moses, speak to the entire assembly of Israel and say to them, be holy because I, the Lord your God, am holy. And that's the bottom line. You're my children. You ought to be like me. Do not steal. Do not lie. Do not deceive one another. Do not swear falsely by name and so profane the name of your God. And on and on the list goes. And you'll recognise as we come back to Ephesians 4 in a moment, that's where Paul got this stuff from. This is biblical to its core. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbour. For we are all members of one body. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry and do not give the devil a foothold. Anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with their own hands that they may have something to share with those in need. Now, we could spend a lot of time talking about each one of these elements here. We're going to have to be satisfied this morning just to note a couple of points. Really, one point is is one I want to make. We're all members of the one body to share with those in need. you notice the relational emphasis here? Again, this is what I mean when I say it's not about a list of ethics, personal ethics, because it's not about me. It's not about us as individuals. It's about us in community. It's about us in relationship to one another. Again, I could do my own thing and that works fine for me as long as I'm living in isolation. But the moment you start adding other people and if they follow that same way of thinking and behaving, we've got big problems, big problems. We've got pretty much what we, what we look at the world today, big problems. Relationship. It's fundamentally about Relationships. Falsehood versus truth. 
No relationship can operate where there is falsehood reigning. Whether you think about an individual in relation to friends, maybe a husband and a wife, for example. Whether you think about an entire community, do you know how impossible it would be to have an economy in a society if, if truth is just given the flick? Imagine trying to operate a business in that sort of climate. Self-control versus lack of discipline. Theft versus productivity. Greed versus sharing. Paul goes on, do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Spirit of God with whom you have you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness and rage and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. Now don't miss don't miss the context here. Who's Paul writing to? The church at Ephesus. Christians. And we've already demonstrated how these themes are common to Paul's writings to any or all of the churches for that matter. Bitterness, rage and anger, brawling and slander, malice. Brethren were struggling with that stuff, it would seem. They were vulnerable to go in that direction, it would seem, even in the first century. We ought not to be surprised or disillusioned even that we might find the same behaviour among brethren today. I'm not condoning it, I'm not excusing it, but I'm saying don't be surprised. Don't underestimate the enemy, even the enemy within the camp. Relational. For the building up of others according to their needs that it may benefit those who listen. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other. That's challenging. Because what, what, what it seems to me that Paul is calling the church to is to put off the old self, the old self-centred self, Because God has raised us from that corpse-like way of being. But he's not just raised us to some sort of vacuum. We are to fill our lives now with the Spirit of God, with the Spirit of Christ. We are to fill our lives with God and God's concern, not just for the self, but for the other. Tearing down versus building up. Bitter fighting versus compassion and forgiveness. I want you to notice there the reference to not grieving the Holy Spirit. We're a people that seek to be led by the Spirit, not to grieve the Spirit. You remember earlier I made that suggestion, the partnership 
the cooperation, as our relationship with God. As we surrender to God, we are offering ourselves up to be available to him to do his transforming work upon us. Not to do that is to grieve the heart of God, is to grieve the Holy Spirit who wants so much more for us. How frustrating, to put it mildly, how heartbreaking it must be for God when he holds out such gifts to us and we decline. It's all good. It's all good. And ultimately, of course, it comes back to God as the standard, God as the measurement. Be holy as I am holy. Be complete as God is complete. Whole as well as holy. So here's, here's the image. Here's the end result. From outside of Christ, might be holding life together to some degree, I guess. And by some measurements, might even be enjoying some degree of success in life. But when it comes to spiritual realities... God would have so much more for us. But only if we put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness.